Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Reboot Rx is a different kind of biotech startup. Reboot's mission is to find generic, non-cancer drugs that can benefit cancer patients quickly and affordably. And as a not-for-profit, Reboot can stay focused on its mission. Given the number of paradigms Reboot hopes to shift at once, we decided to talk with all three co-founders, CEO Laura Kleiman, COO and CTO Pradeep Mangala, and CSO Catherine Delvecchio-Fitz. Each one provides perspective on their part of the puzzle. Let's get right to it. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome three guests from a new not-for-profit company called Reboot Rx. My guests are CEO Laura Kleiman and her colleagues Pradeep and Catherine, who are respectively COO, CTO, and Chief Science Officer. Um, Reboot Rx is a really exciting new organization, but uh, let the team tell you about it. So, Laura, what is Reboot Rx? Sure. Um, as you know, it takes 10 years and a billion dollars to develop one new drug to treat cancer. Cancer patients don't have time to wait. They can't afford these drugs, and which end up costing more than $100,000 a year per person. There's a faster and cheaper way to develop new treatments through repurposing generic drugs. There are hundreds of non-cancer generic drugs that have already shown potential benefit for cancer in preclinical or early clinical studies. But there's so much data on these drugs that it's hard to know which are most worthwhile to pursue. And even if we did know which to pursue, there's no money to fund the clinical trials due to a market failure. There are no incentives for pharmaceutical companies to find new uses for off-patent and inexpensive generic drugs. So these are the challenges that we're tackling at Reboot Rx. We're building technology to sift through all the data to figure out which repurposed therapies are most likely to help cancer patients live longer and better. We're developing new funding models to fill the gap and get the trials done. And ultimately, we'll work to influence the standard of care so that patients around the world have access to these treatments as quickly as possible. That sounds like a really kind of bold and audacious goal. So this is going to take a team to do it. Can you introduce your team members and, and or maybe let them introduce themselves and, and hear how you're going to tackle this on all those fronts? Sure. Yeah, I'm so excited for you to meet Pradeep and Catherine. Um, I feel so grateful to have the opportunity to work with them. Pradeep, why don't you go first? Sure. No, I'm glad to be on this podcast. I uh, go by the title CEO, CTO, but really what I'm in charge at Reboot Rx is um, the technology, data science, and product development. And my background is I trained as, a, as an engineer, an electrical engineer, worked in uh, software engineering for several years. Uh, Tila Packard, and then uh, sort of uh, skipped some stones, uh, went into the world of business and uh, worked in management consulting for several years in the financial services domain. Uh, and because of an unfortunate personal event, 
where my wife was diagnosed with cancer. I had to sort of reevaluate my priorities and went back to grad school, got retrained in biomedical informatics, and find myself now in this interesting sort of intersection of data science and cancer research, where hopefully, uh, along with Catherine and Laura, we want to make a small difference in cancer patients' lives. Great. Thanks, Pradeep. I'm Catherine. Thanks again for having us on this podcast. Um, I lead the science for our organization, so that includes research efforts around cancer biology, our data annotation and curation, and various precision medicine initiatives. Pradeep and I work closely because of the technology platform that we're building together really relies on a close interplay between the science and the technology. Uh, we have a deep understanding of sort of the domain the problems that are being tackled, what data elements need to be extracted, and how to do that sort of on the technology side. Um, so a lot of our projects, Pradeep and I work very closely together in order to build this platform. And in terms of my background, I have more of a cancer research background. I worked in the wet lab for many years before ultimately deciding that I didn't want to stay in academics and I wanted to pursue something more clinically oriented. Um, moved over to clinical genomics, precision medicine, um, and even as far as sort of software product development and more on the informatics side of things. And so interestingly, I've also landed at sort of the intersection of data science and medicine, but a, from a completely different vantage point from Pradeep. Um, but sort of everything sort of meets in the middle. and We both provide sort of the opposite expertise in order to mm -hmm. be able to solve this problem. No, that, that's excellent. Um, you know, we, we found in our organization that, that this really does require a, a true multidisciplinarity. And it's, it sounds exciting because each one of you is already a, a jack of many trades coming in. I, I think this sounds, sounds like you, you bring the necessary expertise. Before we dive into the science and the data and the data science and the products, all four of which I want to talk about, um, Laura, let me come back to you and, and ask just what does it mean to be a, not, a nonprofit startup? And can you tell us a little bit maybe about the the conception and the inception of, of Reboot? Sure, so for us, being a nonprofit means that we can stay 100% focused on impact rather than steering our work towards what would generate profit. Um, for us, it's, it was pretty obvious that it was the right fit to be a not-for-profit organization. I got started in this space about five years ago when I learned about how many promising cancer treatments are being ignored because there's no pathway to develop them, and these are these repurposed generic drugs. And when I dug into the data and I saw how promising many of these repurposed therapies were, I was also, at that time, um, looking at it from a patient's perspective. So my mom was fighting cancer. And I actually got very upset, almost angry, that all of these promising treatments are not able to help patients right now because there's no incentive for anybody to pursue them. So that was when I first got into this space. But our organization really started, I would say, back in January when the three of us came together to work on this initiative full time. And that's when we started building out our internal science and tech capabilities. Gotcha. No, that's really interesting. Does that mean you're a public benefit company or what's the actual sort of legal structure behind a, a nonprofit startup? We're a 501c3. 501c3. Public charity. Okay. Very cool. Let's get into the, the data and the data science and the genomics. So this is a question for any one of you. 
where do you start? Do you start with the disease? Do you start with the drugs? Do you start with patient data? I mean, this is a really tough nut. So, so how do you approach it? I think it would be useful maybe to start with what are the different data types that we're looking at? Um, where might there be evidence that we would want to capture about the potential benefit of these drugs? And Catherine, do you want to give this a shot? Sure, yeah. So we are basically trying to aggregate information from a variety of different data sources and types of data that would encompass sort of a broad range of different um, pieces of evidence. Um, so one that we're certainly looking at is published literature and what information is out there on particular drugs of interest that have been either published in clinical studies that have already been conducted, but also preclinical efforts um, and really anything in the sort of published literature domain. But we know that that's not the complete story. So we're also looking into capturing real world data endpoints. So for example, data from the electronic health record, but also patient reported or physician reported data that's not in the electronic health record. And that would be an important perspective to complement the other aspects of the data that we're looking at. And beyond that, you know, there's other publicly available screening data sets. There's more and more information on genomic correlates in relation to drug response or particular vulnerabilities of different cancer types. And so we sort of see it as, you know, a multi-layered approach where um, we may start with a certain data element. For example, we're starting with extracting data from published literature, but eventually folding in all these other aspects that will give us a more complete picture in terms of what we're looking at. I think it might be important to also talk for a moment about how many published studies there are and what exactly we're referring to here. Oftentimes, I get the response, oh, so these are studies that are not necessarily looking at the drug being tested for the treatment of cancer, but then you're going to predict that this drug might also be beneficial for cancer. And that's not what we're doing here. So what we're doing is actually looking at studies that have been published where these drugs have already been tested for specific cancers or cancer patient populations. And there are tens of thousands of these studies that have already been conducted from preclinical to randomized controlled clinical trials testing these drugs in cancer patient populations. And that's where we're starting. Gotcha. And, and so just from sort of a technological standpoint, you know, this is, I'm guessing this is a very large body of literature. And then when you start adding other layers of data and evidence, it gets bigger still. How do you make that problem tractable? Is there a technological solution or is this gonna take an army of, you know? Yeah, no, I think you've nailed, uh, I want to put it out there. It's not a unique problem. You know, there's a lot, big data is what it is because there is just an expansive um, volume of data out there. And as um, Catherine mentioned, we're looking at at least three different data sources, but we're starting with published studies for now. And within that, so it's, you know, from an analytical pipeline standpoint, there's really three main steps as we see it. The data extraction problem is in and of itself a problem. And then there's sort of, because we're interested in drugs, cancers, and outcomes to understand uh, in evidence for a drug in treating the cancer, the second part of that would be to sort of extract relationships between these entities from the text. And finally, once we sort of infer some uh, evidence label, we want to be able to then rank these drugs because ultimately that's what we would care about, trying to bring the most promising drugs to some sort of clinical implementation stage, right? 
So as you called it out, so right now, what is, what is the process? We're starting with sort of creating these training data sets that we can then apply language models that then can help us essentially infer evidence in an automated fashion. And I can talk a little more about that, but that's, that's our hypothesis is to say it's intractable to sort of have a manual systematic review process set in place to look at this universe of drugs for a whole set of cancers. And that's what we're setting out to do. So we're pretty early stages in that process. Um, and I can go into sort of where we are with the types of models. And clearly, mm-hmm. Laura, I think, might want to add something to this. Yeah, I think it might also be helpful to give a sense for how long it takes to manu- manually review the published mm-hmm. literature just for one drug. And what we know from some of our colleagues that have done this over the years is that it can take up to six months of full-time work to review all of the data, the published data on one repurposed drug and all of the evidence that exists for its potential effects on cancer. And there are around 2,000 generic drugs for which we would like to synthesize the evidence for. So it just, it's, it's very clear to us that a manual approach um, is, will not be sufficient. Um, besides the fact that once you spend the six months manually reviewing the literature, you create a static review article and a few months later, the conclusions that were drawn from that article are out of date because information right. has become available. And that was really the motivation for taking a more systematic approach to this problem. That's really fascinating. The language models is really interesting. I mean, th- this is, I think, an area where you at least have the benefit of, of a lot of kind of open source tooling, but then, of course, making it work with, with a highly kind of esoteric or niche you know, body of input data is the challenge, I suppose. Yeah, that's 100%. And so, you know, when we think of data science and applying natural language processing here, the biggest lift we can really realize, um, so you, like you mentioned, they're open source transformer models that we're mm-hmm. actually using right now. Um, and they're, uh, you know, the state of the art is pretty great uh, right off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our major contribution is really the work that Catherine and some of our interns do in trying to identify uh, sort of almost, you know, build these annotation, annotated data sets that are highly specific to the domain that we're trying to mm-hmm. track towards. So uh, as I mentioned, one of the key challenges is identifying these entity relationships or what in the language uh, science sort of is referred to as a co-reference resolution problem is is a challenging problem in and of itself. But unless we identify sort of spans of text within abstracts, and so we're working with, just to sort of scope this out, we're working with readily available public information, which mm-hmm. in the true sense is abstracts, not full text data uh, mm-hmm. of these articles. Uh, so within those, um, you know, the basic pipeline is to say, can we look at an abstract and with uh, some level of confidence, one, identify the relevant abstracts for our scope Right. And the second task is within once we identify these relevant abstracts, can we identify these cancer and drug entities and establish some sort of multi-class label of efficacy from within that? Mm -hmm. Um, And to tune these models, um, really what we need is a couple of things. One of the training data sets, which we're trying to build together. But in addition to that, you know, the domain knowledge that Catherine brings and she talked to that a little more is identifying sort of um, external data sets that we can supplement the, the training labels because it's, it's hard enough to build a training data set 
or a specific disease, so a subset of cancer, sort of generalizing that to the world of cancers and a whole set mm -hmm. of drugs, uh, using these you know, state-of-the-art language models, even if they're trained on a corpus like you know, the PubMed uh, literature and PMC, uh, is quite challenging. So, so Catherine, how do you think about applying some constraints? It sounds like you, you mentioned there, there's a constellation of 2,000 generic drugs. Did I get that number right? Um, mm -hmm. So, okay, that's one constraint. It's not all the drugs in the world, but there are a lot of cancers, and probably each one of those is actually 10 diseases or more. So, so how do you think about narrowing the scope to build training sets? Exactly. Yeah. So we've taken a couple of different approaches over time. And more recently, we've actually sort of utilized um, a smaller drug list of about 15 drugs that we derived as part of a COVID specific project, actually, that we could talk about uh, later if it's of interest. Um, and it really serves as a great use case for us to be able to have a tractable number of drugs and publications to be able to try to test and train our models. Um, it still yields thousands of publications. So for example, if you just put those 15 drugs into PubMed, you get you know, 160,000 hits. And so we've actually devised kind of a combination actually of rules and filtering, querying processes to help us narrow and focus those articles and then to be able to layer our machine learning models on top of that. Um, and I think this sort of combined approach is really enabling us to achieve a higher level of accuracy within our um, data sets that we're looking at and also helps with the scale issue of sort of narrowing in various ways. And we've done um, sort of projects where we actually are fortunate that we have had a team of interns this summer. Um, and so we went through about 1200 publications by hand. Um, and it's sort of this iterative process where um, we're going through articles by hand um, in part to be released as part of a specific project, but also it feeds directly back into our training data sets and also helps us to think about future features and other sort of um, aspects of the data that we're not uh, incorporating. So it's a real sort of live feedback mm -hmm. where we realize, oh, you know, we need to update this rule or we missed this set of, you know, articles in our queries. Um, and so we can iterate through using a variety mm -hmm. of techniques. Interesting. I, I'm curious, partly because it's the angle that, that my team comes at, which is more from kind of the molecular biology of cancer, and also given that you're a wet lab scientist by training, and that there's just, you know, an, an equally sort of challenging wealth of, of molecular and cellular data in the public domain. Do you already, or, or do you sort of see a roadmap towards kind of inferring from the literature and, and say clinical annotations to maybe molecular data and, and support on that axis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we, right now we're focusing on the clinical published studies, which at this point are less likely to have molecular information, but it's still possible. But we are, it's almost a separate set of training or models that would pull out sort of genomically focused mechanism of action from uh, either published literature or other um, data sets versus those that pull out 
you know, outcomes or phenotypic information. And sometimes the two can be combined, but I think we're going to have to have parallel approaches to get at both pieces of information. But we have also this summer in parallel been exploring some of the publicly available genomically associated data sets where they have done large in vitro screening assays with drugs, um, you know, large scale uh, 5,000 compound libraries. So this would be like the CCLE database or something like that, like the Broad data. Yeah, exactly. The Broad data, CMAP, uh, or Mm -hmm. from their drug repurposing effort, they published Mm -hmm. a large profile um, screen earlier this year. And so we're able to mine through that information to both understand sort of known mechanism of action, but also infer novel mechanism of actions. Because ultimately, it's not going to be enough to say that, you know, drug X is going to be helpful in cancer, or lung cancer. It's going to have to be a very specific stratified population where we think that there's going to be the most benefit. And if we can identify a biomarker for that, I mean, it would really help us to move things along clinically and I think would set us up for um, you know, much higher likelihood of success with the clinical trial in the future. Gotcha. Given that, that one of the constraints is around this idea of generics, let me, let me take a step back and, and ask a kind of painfully naive question. How, how in the sense do you identify or, or define rather a drug as a generic? Is that a term of art or is that, you know, a shorthand for something? And, and then what are the implications in terms of, okay, great, you found a drug that might work. Now, how do you actually access that drug to make it, make it work, right? Yes, we're all laughing a little bit because it's, it is a bit of an art <laughs> to figure out what's a generic, what's on patent, what's you know, off exclusivity, all of those details. And there's various um, sources of information, but there's not sort of one publicly available streamlined source that will just give you the list of all of the FDA-approved non-cancer generics. So we actually have a large ongoing process, project where we're trying to compile that information and there's just there's nuances around it really from every vantage point you know there's drugs that are still on patent and do have exclusivity around them but the company has decided to release it uh, and it is generically available or potentially it's generically available only in certain uh, markets or certain countries and with covid that's become you know sort of front and center for example with remdesivir it is a you know molecule that is still on patent and protected by its company but obviously they felt the need to make it more widely available. And so it is generically available, but only outside of the U.S. Um, And so it's almost like for many of the drugs, you have to do specific searching to really understand beyond just a high-level judgment what the true availability is. And what we're really interested in Um, The reason we're interested in these generic drugs is because of their long history of safe patient use. So if they're Mm -hmm. off patent, they've been used usually for many decades. Um, They're low cost. And also, many of them are widely available. So many of the drugs that we're interested in are listed on the WHO essential medicines list and are available in most countries at sufficient quantities. So that's why we're excited about these right. drugs. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've had discussions with, with folks and friends who are working, for example, on the bleeding edge of new cell therapies. And don't get me wrong, I'm super excited about those too. But, you know, at a quarter million dollar transfusion or something, it, it, there's, and not to mention the specialized facilities needed to produce them, 
you know, there, there's there's room to make impact in a lot of different ways. So from from kind of each of your perspectives, what is, uh, you've talked a lot about kind of the progress you've made this summer and, and we're sort of in the dog days. What's, what's the plan for the near term in sort of each of your, your departments? What do you, what do you think is sort of the next kind of milestone um, to prove out some of your hypotheses? Yeah, so we've been thinking a lot recently about what our milestones are for this year and what really is the most important goal for us to reach in the near term. And I think um, everything together is pointing towards that, first and foremost, we need to get to a list of ranked and prioritized drugs that we feel like have the most promise for a repurposing opportunity and have you know the most um, likelihood of having anti-cancer activity. Um, and to do that, we need to build the first iteration of our evidence synthesis platform to extract information from published clinical studies, at least as a start. Because um, I think without at least that initial list, we still, you know, it's, it's hard for us to know exactly um, where things will go or how to sort of move from there um, because we have to have that as sort of the building point for deciding how we prioritize next steps, what seem to be the likely candidates, uh, what other information do we need in order to mm -hmm. be able to refine that list. So that's really what's on our um, immediate milestone for this year. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. And, and do you have kind of in the sort of midterm vision then uh, an idea already of who you might partner with to to then test some of those, you know, to go back to the lab or, or into mice or or whatever. Would you draw on some of your previous relationships for that, or do you see do you see reboot expanding to maybe have that capacity internally as well? I would hope for most of these, the next step would be a large scale definitive clinical trial, and not necessarily preclinical studies. In some cases, of course, we may want to mm -hmm. go back into the laboratory understand more about mechanism of action mm -hmm. in a specific type of cancer. But the advantage is that many of these have already been tested in smaller scale clinical mm -hmm. trials. So for example, in randomized controlled trials with say 50 to 100 cancer patients, where the next step, if we really thought that it was worthwhile to pursue, would be to fund that definitive clinical trial, let's just call it a phase three clinical right. trial. And so for me, I need to be thinking about how we can get those trials funded. That, mm -hmm. in my mind, is maybe more of a challenge than the data challenge, because there's just no funding for these definitive clinical mm -hmm. trials. So while Catherine and Pradeep are working really hard to develop our science and technology and to help us identify those most promising candidates, um, I'm going to be working at the same time to figure out how we can get those either tested in definitive clinical trials mm -hmm. or perhaps straight into the standard of care if sufficient evidence exists. So for example, if there were one of those clinical trials with say 50 to 100, let's say 100 cancer patients in a randomized format already showing benefit, a clear benefit from that size clinical trial, and if we could supplement that data with real world evidence, perhaps that would be sufficient evidence to be able to get that treatment adopted into the standard of care. And that's what we're exploring while we're getting to that list of prioritized drugs. Gotcha, and is there sort of a blueprint or, or historical examples of, of the FDA accepting a data package from the literature to, to repurpose generic outside of cancer, say in, in some other domain? The regulatory issue is a huge question. <laughs> so first of all, just to lay some groundwork, our goal is to change the standard of care for cancer. 
with these drugs, whichever drugs are proven effective. Not necessarily to get FDA approval or change the label of the drug mm -hmm. for that indication. Um, so because the two are not necessarily linked. So for mm -hmm. example, a goal might be that the treatment is listed within the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines, which mm -hmm. sort of direct what is standard of care, direct physician use of treatments, as well as insurance reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole question about what role the FDA will play here. It, it's actually not straightforward how we would even go about getting FDA approval or getting a label change because we're not a current manufacturer or we will never be a manufacturer right. of these drugs. So the That's FDA it. has a new, a new initiative called Project Renewal. It's related, I believe, to the Modern Labeling Act where there are efforts to update labels of old drugs where the treatment has now become the standard of care for cancer, but it has never been listed on the label and the FDA will take an active role to review the evidence and actually update the labels, especially when the original manufacturer or patent holder is no longer manufacturing that drug. But this is a bit different um, from mm -hmm. that because these treatments are not currently used as part of the standard of care for cancer. Gotcha. But the FDA is thinking about new approaches. Last summer, I was invited to spend the day with the Oncology Center of Excellence group where we were talking about how they could support drug repurposing, especially mm -hmm. with generic drugs. And so they're definitely thinking about potentially new pathways for um, getting these treatments either approved when they're, it's not through a traditional path, for example, if it's a nonprofit that is pursuing these treatments. Do you see the, the notion of, for example, moving something in the standard of care through the NCCN as more of a, let's call it an advocacy exercise, working with the writers of, of that particular standard? Or is that something where they're going to want to see a new trial or some, you know, like where you would probably have to go back and reg actually register and get patients in to take the drug. Yeah, so in most cases, we expect that an additional clinical trial will be needed, at least okay. one, a more traditional phase three trial. Mm -hmm. But I still think that's a bit, it's a bit different uh, from mm -hmm. the first part of your question, because right. even once the trial is completed, there needs to be an advocate to get that mm -hmm. treatment listed in the guidelines. Right. And the guidelines, that's not everything. Yeah, that's just a, a small piece of the puzzle. Sure. Still need to raise awareness that this is a treatment option, mm -hmm. and ideally around the world. Mm -hmm. What are some of your ideas on, on financing a trial like that? I know this hasn't really been tested yet, but I'm curious to think of, you know, hear what some of the things you're thinking about. Yeah, two areas that we're thinking about are new market-based incentives that could promote even pharmaceutical companies to run these clinical trials. And the other one that we're more excited about even is new ways to use outcome-based financing mm -hmm. to, in essence, fund these trials. And that's an approach that would leverage healthcare savings that result mm -hmm. from proven effective repurposed therapies to pay back investors who funded that mm -hmm. trial and potentially also fund subsequent clinical trials. Payers and, and providers would be your, your kind of targets there then? Yes. There are many different ways that this could be structured, but mm -hmm. in the traditional sense, yes. Oftentimes it's also governments who are the success payers, mm -hmm. where investors are taking on the initial risk and then governments are uh, providing these success payments. These, this uh, model is also known as a pay for success model, a social impact bond. It's been used in other areas uh, like recidivism, education, 
and it started to be used around lifestyle changes for prevention of diabetes or hypertension. It's never been used in this way before, though, to fund new interventions in clinical trials. Maybe I'm being naive. It seems like sort of a test case for that should probably be outside the U.S., just given the kind of morass of our healthcare and reimbursement system. Um, do you have existing relationships or sort of places in mind where you think they'd be receptive? Maybe Canada or, you know, are we looking at Europe or what's on your mind? Yeah, some of my colleagues have been, where we started was in the UK with the National Health Service, um, both a payer and provider, single payer system. Um, and it's, it was really hard to gain traction. Basically, you need an advocate within the NHS who is going to fight for this new, innovative way to do things. You know, it seems like a no-brainer that payers should want um, to enter into this type of tr contract. I mean, we're talking about potentially saving billions of dollars per year in healthcare costs, but to do anything this new is, of course, a challenge. So we started there and ran into some challenges. Right now, we're looking at large payers and healthcare systems within the U.S., so for example, we've built out a model and a framework for a particular set of repurposed therapies and how they could be impactful within the VA system. And uh, we've done calculations about how much money this could save the VA, and, and in addition to, of course, all of the lives that could be saved. But everybody will benefit from these clinical trials being funded and run the results will be useful around the world. So really, this should, we should create a global social impact bond where everybody is paying into the successes because everybody will benefit from them. Of course, that has its logistical challenges. So given the mission here of having this kind of global impact and, and the notion that this rising tide is going to float all ships, how are you treating, for example, access to data, access to algorithms, and maybe more on the product side, like are you looking at making your work products very public and maybe even, I don't know, I'm, I'm just spitballing, open, you know, sort of crowdsourcing some of the work here? Like how, how is the science team thinking about trying to, to really engage the global community of scientists around this problem? Yes, so we are certainly pursuing an open model. We wanna be transparent with both what we're collecting, but also the data that we do collect and to release that in a way that's available for others to use, um, both in terms of the models themselves, but also the actual data that we produce as part of that. Uh, so that's certainly part of our mission is to make that um, accessible and available. In terms of crowdsourcing, um, I, I guess in a sense we have been doing that a little bit in terms of um, utilizing a team of uh, interns that we were fortunate to have this summer that were sponsored via fellowship from their various institutions. And we have thought about engaging in other larger crowdsourcing mm -hmm. efforts as well. And we may do that if we do decide that there's a large body of sort of manual annotation mm -hmm. work that needs to be done. But we're hoping that we can balance the manual work with the sort of um, model supported <laughs> aspect of what we do to keep it within sort of a reasonable range. Gotcha. Um, but we certainly do want to release the information. In terms of crowdsourcing, I'm familiar a bit with Cochrane Crowd, which is maybe the type of crowdsourcing that you're thinking of. I would go back to Catherine and though ask, it seems that the type of annotation work is actually quite complex. 
-hmm. And I think uh, that Catherine would agree that for now, we felt that we needed to keep it in-house and really highly train our annotators um, to get it right. Yeah. Would you agree, Catherine? Your machine learning models will learn any um, patterns that are errantly put there by people who aren't, you know, yeah, you, you, definitely, exactly. you definitely want a certain amount of quality control over your training sets. I think that's completely to be expected. Yes, absolutely. I guess part of, part of what I'm thinking about, there's there just recently has been a really interesting kind of paradigm shift led by companies, for example, like Recursion Pharmaceuticals, which mostly do, their secret sauce is high throughput cellular imaging and cell painting. And I guess we call it phenomics, right? But they've open sourced a huge quantity of image data, in fact, sponsored Kaggle competitions around it, and just dropped you know, a, a nightmarishly large amount of data and a preprint from their, their COVID screen, which you know, found remdesivir as well as two other molecules to be named among you know, a library of X thousands of molecules. So it just reminded me of what you're doing in the sense that they're taking a, a defined molecule set and saying, all right, this is how it performed against these, these cellular models. And you're doing that sort of in a, a textual way, I suppose. Yeah, and maybe a good example of how we're thinking about releasing data would be with respect to the project that we just released last week around our COVID cancer project. Well, tell us more about that. Tell us more about the data set and and what you found. Sure, absolutely. So the reason we pursued the project is that, well, first we wanted to be able to contribute to the COVID efforts, and we felt that we were in a unique position to do that, both with our expertise on the machine learning side, sort of combing through massive amounts of data, um, but also on the oncology side, because cancer patients are uniquely vulnerable to COVID, and there is just still not that much information available in terms of how cancer patients are uniquely sensitive or what their outcomes might be, how to treat those patients, you know, as compared to COVID patients that don't have cancer. Uh, So we embarked on a project to synthesize all published clinical studies and registered clinical trials sort of surrounding cancer and COVID. And it took the form in two different data sets. One of them is sort of looking at the current body of evidence and is essentially pulling out all of the clinical studies that are relevant for cancer patients with COVID-19. So those could be the observational studies reporting on a cohort of 100 cancer patients with COVID-19 and what their outcomes have been, you know, what treatments they were given, et cetera. Uh, but also all of the ongoing clinical trials that are collecting information on this particular population. And then a second data set is perhaps more in line with our overall organizational mission, and it's actually to synthesize the information on the effects of the drugs being used to potentially treat COVID and how those might impact someone's cancer. Um, Because a lot of the drugs that are being considered to treat COVID are actually repurposed generic drugs that do have anti-cancer activity. There's a lot of similarities in the cellular machinery between viruses and cancer. Um, There's a variety of reasons why. There's a considerable overlap between drugs targeting COVID and drugs that might have uh, cancer efficacy. And so we felt it was important to try to synthesize that information across the drugs being considered to treat COVID. So a cancer patient would both be able to understand how COVID is, is impacting or how they are impacted by COVID, but also what the impacts of that might be on their cancer, sort of more in the long term. And we just compiled that um, and released the data set in its entirety, both 
in a visualizable form, we created some Tableau dashboards for people to view and filter, sort through the data, but also you can download the entire data set that we assembled. Very, very cool. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's really the spirit of the sort of movement of you know, fellow travelers around doing open science around these initiatives, especially when there's a, such a public health benefit you know, at play. In terms of your, your kind of future plans, the roadmap, do you, and, and pretty, given your background in, in software engineering, do you eventually see having kind of a, a, a reboot portal? Or like, how do, you, how do you think the future of data dissemination and sharing your results is going to look like? I mean, that doesn't have to be, you know, day one priority. I understand you want to get started with the, the actual data mining, but what does yeah. that roadmap look like in your mind's eye today? It's coming together in, uh, in our minds uh, <laughs> would be the easiest answer. But, you know, we're thinking about this actively um, because, uh, you know, when you asked about the roadmap from a technical standpoint, uh, what we might have mentioned, and I can make that concrete, is we're actually building these models uh, by leaning on sort of the standing on the shoulder of some of the giants who have been doing this stuff mm -hmm. for a long time. So we have external collaborations with IBM Research and mm -hmm. uh, some of the universities in the Boston area, including Northeastern University. Um, and so we're borrowing on their implementations of some of the open source libraries mm -hmm. to uh, achieve a level of performance that is tenable to our task. Mm -hmm. um, now, going forward, I think one part of the roadmap, as Catherine mentioned, is to quickly get to a list that we can start doing, taking downstream. And in order to do that, we've been thinking about moving a lot of the technology in-house, sort of uh, building our own platform with sort of, you know, the end-to-end -end, sort of the cloud facilities to run mm -hmm. the inference. And as we do that, I think that'll allow us a bigger appetite to consume uh, and infer data at a much larger level because right now it's sort of very experimental. Mm -hmm. We do it in small batches, and uh, it's you know uh, it's just not as scalable because the the sort of feedback is not tightly coupled and not fast enough. And so one of the things we might want to do is once we have that platform in place, and the more insights we derive, the more data sort of we can just generate from there. We'd want to put that out for public consumption. Uh, it's mm -hmm. more now a question of in the roadmap, you know, who would use that data. Right. And as uh, you know, our current sort of uh, blueprint is researchers, just like with the COVID data, might be the most um, you know, active users of such information. Mm -hmm. And like you pointed out, there's other parts downstream. So in order to get from the data and the insights to a ranked list, there's almost like you can think of that as a systematic meta-analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, based on a lot of numerical data that needs to be extracted from this text. And mm -hmm. that problem is not a very solved problem in the language modeling space necessarily. So even thinking about how might we sort of source both the expertise to extract that information by making available a public data source, right, just by a uh, matter of our data pipeline, mm -hmm. uh, using Kaggle or other uh, sort of data thons in some ways, but allow us to want to take our our standardized process and allow sort of to get, you know, there's so many ways to build our training data set. So it's important for us to think about sort of distance supervision techniques and leaning on other expertise. So mm -hmm. that's all part of our roadmap in the immediate term. And sort of, you know, more longer term, it's also a matter of integrating these other data types, which we not even started sort of exploring like EMR records, but we have right. conversations with other collaborators. Mm -hmm. That makes that. a lot of sense. Given you know the, the 
sheer kind of ambition and scale of work ahead. Um, Lauro, how does how does a four hundred one c in the space think about you know keeping the lights on and scaling the team? So uh, we're all used to kind of startups hustling for for venture capital and so forth. And you know, I think a lot of our audience understands both the pros and cons and more cons of that game. Um, what's it like to be doing this in in kind of a, a new way? Yeah, unfortunately, venture capitalists are not interested in us. <laughs> uh, so we. We, so we're currently funded uh, solely by philanthropy, and we've been extremely fortunate to uh, have received a, a very significant philanthropic donation at the end of last year, which has enabled us to come on full time and uh, hire a few other employees. Mm -hmm. We expect to be funded by philanthropy for at least the next few years mm -hmm. uh, in full. And then eventually we are thinking about ways that we can generate revenue to support our nonprofit mission, to be able to scale as well. Um, and I kind of think of funding as um, in two buckets. One is for us to support our organization and to enable us to grow our technology. And then the other, of course, is how do we enable these clinical trials, which is just a completely different magnitude Right. and might not even come directly to our organization, might directly fund those who are running the clinical trials. Right. No, that makes sense. Are there granting mechanisms available as well? For example, can you do an SPIR with your status or, or something like that? Unfortunately, no. No. But there are, there are foundations mm -hmm. who support nonprofits. We are quite unique in terms of the type of nonprofit we are, um, you know, we've we've gotten a comment from a Harvard faculty member once that it's like we're an academic research group, but we are a random group of people that work within WeWork, <laughs> and they get kind of confused because we yeah. are a bit like an academic group, but we're completely independent and we're not the mm -hmm. traditional community-based nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Funding mechanisms for nonprofits are not a fit for us because of mm -hmm. that. Uh, but we're, we're looking for the, the individuals with a large capacity to give who are excited mm -hmm. about potentially having a huge impact in a very innovative way and getting treatments to patients faster than any traditional approach would allow. And mm -hmm. so far, we've been lucky to find that type of funder, and we hope to bring more on board to support this mission. No, I, I mean, I think what's so appealing about your mission to me is it's simultaneously really grand, but it's also very concrete. It, you know, it's not necessarily about kicking off a 20-year development timeline for a drug of the future. It's about helping patients tomorrow, if you can, and helping patients everywhere around the world, and helping patients who couldn't afford to have that, that treatment 20 years out. And so, to me, the the pragmatism that's sort of the other side of the coin of your ambition is what's most appealing about it. This is not a, a feature of the podcast, but let's do sort of a quick fire just to go around the horn. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear from each of you sort of a, a parting shot, a parting thought, something you'd like our listeners to take away from this, just kind of from your perspective on, on this new adventure you're embarking on. I guess one, one point that I would like to just make sure gets across is that this type of effort for it to succeed will require some new types of collaborations, um, whether it's it, obviously with researchers, with physicians, with patients. Patients are going to be active partners in this initiative with payers, regulatory agencies, with healthcare systems. So we're really excited about building these new partnerships 
and really finding alignment with our work and with other groups who are motivated to improve outcomes for patients while also decreasing healthcare costs. And we're optimistic that we're going to find some really fantastic partners, especially for this last phase of our end-to-end approach, which is actually impacting the standard of care. That's a tough one to follow. Catherine, Pradeep, you want to try? <laughs> well, I can try. Um, maybe because it's any thought. Uh, my thought immediately goes back to sort of uh, how I'm tying my background to sort of the mission-driven uh, work that we're doing at RebootRx. I, I come mainly from some of this, from the commercial sector, and so working within a nonprofit, I think, has given me a perspective to understand how you can have an impact by being really open and transparent and allowing, uh, truly, I think, because of the type of problem we're trying to solve, opens up the collaborative space um, that is needed to move the needle in, you know, in cancer research. I think while for-profits have to focus on product and think about what the end use case is, uh, as uh, you know, the, as an organization that we're structured, we're we're better enabled to actually build the collaborations to have a larger scale scale impact. No, that, that's that's a great insight. Um, for me, with my background, I've always been interested in the science. I really want to understand sort of. The mechanisms and what's going on behind the scenes. But I also knew that I wanted to have an impact directly on patients and on care. And I've been in the sort of cancer oncology space for a long time. And I had been searching for a way to sort of combine both my expertise, but also the desire to be able to have an impact in the near term. Uh, and in a way that is sort of in line with my personal sort of goals of promoting open science and collaborative research and you know a lot of the things that I was so grateful for in academics. And I think we are in a unique space where we're able to sort of leverage both um, our ability as a nonprofit to collaborate and to be open in a different way than we would as a for-profit organization. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, it's, you know, or for me personally, we're just at this really interesting intersection where we can have impact, but it's deeply rooted in the science and cutting edge technology. And we are able to still be open and collaborative about that. So that's what I'm most excited about and uh, what keeps me going forward. No, I think that's a great point. I, I think we'll, we will add some links to the, the show notes. Um, I encourage everyone to check out Reboot's website. The list of who's who on your, both your advisor roster and also you know, kind of existing academic partners, I think speaks to, to the point all three of you made, which really is about collaboration and using your unique structure and position to collaborate on the science, to collaborate on, on the data, and on the myriad other challenges that, that Laura, you're going to get to tackle around regulatory concerns and, and actually making this work in, in the real world. We, we certainly wish you guys a world of success. I know the patients definitely need it. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Pradeep and Laura, for joining us today. I think we haven't heard the last to reboot RX and, and we're going to be watching for great things. Thank you so much for having us on. It was really fun to chat with you and really appreciate this opportunity. This has been episode 21 of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.